The inquest into the death has returned a verdict of unlawful killing. The inquest heard today that social Yesterday, a jury in Carrigan Shannon returned a verdict of death by medical misadventure at the conclusion of the inquest. When a loved one dies, we can be left with many unanswered questions. This is a resumed inquest today at the Dublin City Coroner's Court and previously... It's an awful experience, but it has to be done. We go now to the inquest into a car crash in July last year. In Ireland, sudden, unexplained, violent or unnatural deaths are investigated by the office of the coroner. It draws a line on exactly what happened and it's a new starting point. I was scared before inquest. I was really scared. I didn't know what, what can happen in there. I'm Rory McKenna, and during the last year and a half, I've been following the work of two of Ireland's coroners and meeting some of the people they serve. People who have lost loved ones and are looking for one thing in particular, a cause of death. We're here now in Ballina Courthouse. That's Eleanor Fitzgerald. She's explaining her day's work to me. We are dealing with three inquests today. Eleanor is the local GP. She's also the coroner for North Mayo. Two of them are as a result of accidents on the road. The first is a young man who was driving out the Ballinar Road. We're not sure whether he was on his own or was there somebody with him, but his car was found in, up against a tree in an embankment and he, he was dead on the spot. This is one of over two dozen inquest cases Eleanor deals with every year. There's a big investigation into how this happened. So there are lots of statements coming from different people and friends that he was with during the day. So that could be, as I say, controversial, but evidence may be hard to to ascertain as to actually what happened, which is very important for his mother to know. He was only 21 years of age. There are two very different road traffic cases being heard today. And in both instances, the families involved are waiting in hope and fear to find out what really happened to their loved one. We're going to meet up with the, there's the guardie there, the representatives who are investigating and preparing the file. And then there's solicitors there representing the family. And then there are the witnesses there as well. It's a difficult day's work for Eleanor. So when I go in, I will swear in the jury. And then the, the sergeant opens the inquiry and then we start calling the witnesses and take them one at a turn. Just like Eleanor Fitzgerald, Terence Casey has been working as a coroner for over two decades. He lives in Killarney and covers South and West Kerry. Hi, Rory. How are you? Good to see you. Welcome in. When a person dies, it must be ascertained how they died. Because the cause of death or the actual cause creating the death has to be impaneled on the death certificate. So if you can't determine how a person died, you can't have a death certificate issued. And in 99% of cases, you have to have a death certificate to be able to administer one's estate or something like that. About 40 people across the country serve as coroners, and for many people who have lost family and friends in unexplained circumstances, they can provide answers as to how and why the death occurred. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year you're on call. There's no rest from it at all. Like You know, you can be called any time of the day or night. And you're dealing then with unfortunate circumstances like road traffic accidents where you see uh, bodies torn apart, where you, you know, fires, where you've seen the burnt bodies and all this type of thing. It's not, it's not a job everyone would do, like. 11,500 deaths were reported to the coroners in 2016. Whatever the eventual outcome, the role begins as soon as a body is discovered. Coroner Eleanor Fitzgerald explains. 
the office of the coroner would uh, receive the calls of a sudden death, give permission to for the Gardaí to remove the body for post-mortem. And then when the, the pathologist who does the post-mortem sends his report to us, we then arrange a date for an inquest to inquire into the death if it's necessary. An inquest is not normally held if a post-mortem examination of a body can explain the cause of death. In many ways, the coroner's court resembles a normal court hearing in that witnesses are called, swear an oath and give evidence. The coroner usually meets a family for the first time when they have just suffered a loss. Most families are under extreme stress at the time, extreme grief because of what has happened. We don't go to the door before it happens, we go to the door after it happens. And normally within a very, very short period, so people are in mourning, they're in grief. So they don't even realise who's coming to the door. They don't know whether it's a guard, a doctor, or an ambulance. Or, you know, when they see the coroner, they know it's a serious. It, it's certainly not like people think it is. You know, what they see on the television and, and our role is not really a forensic pathologist's role. But what we actually do is coordinate events. Coroners are officers of the court. They are appointed. In Terence's case, with little notice. I was nominated to become a coroner by the previous coroner. He made me a deputy coroner back in 92 when my dad died, who was a deputy coroner up until then. And uh, he nominated me as a deputy coroner without even talking to me about it. He threw me in the deep end, in other words. My very first inquest was done way back in the 90s. I remember being at home and, and the phone rang and the guard said, look, listen, we've had a sudden death. And I said, so what? They said, well, you're the deputy coroner, you're on call. I didn't even know it. So I was caught in the hop like, you know. A tourist died, I think it was at a lake hotel, died suddenly of a heart attack, and they couldn't um, get somebody to certify the cause of death. We had to have a post-mortem, and because they wanted to bring the body straight back out to America, we had to issue a death certificate, therefore we had to hold an inquest that night. Um, because I didn't know how to get into the courthouse to hold it. We had to hold it in a hotel. One particular experience prepared Terence to deal with the realities of the loss of life. I was involved in the founding of Kerry Mountain Rescue 40, 45 years ago, I suppose. We had at least one fatal accident on the mountains here in Kerry every year. And we'd have to go up there and collect the body, which if it had fallen, we'd say a thousand feet on current tool or somewhere like that. You could imagine what kind of state it would be in. There was, there, there was times where we had to pick up parts of bodies and stuff them into a bag to bring them down, into a body bag to bring them down the mountain. Like, you know what I mean? It was fairly gruesome. But once you, I think, once you overcome the first one, you start, to become, start becoming immune to what you're looking at. It's still a, a human body, but at the same time, you just have to sort of close your mind to that fact and say, OK, we must just get it together and get it back down for the family's sake. So when you go out then road traffic accidents, I can, you know, I look at bodies and, you know, I mean, it, they just don't affect me that way. Eleanor Fitzgerald is from Galway. She took over her role from one of the most outspoken coroners of his day, her father-in-law, Dr Mick Loftus. I became an assistant to Dr Mickey Loftus, who was actually coroner for North Mayo when I came in 1985. And uh, when he retired as a coroner, I was um, asked to take the job. But uh, as a learning process, it, it wasn't hard as such because you're familiar with illness, death is, is never far from our door and we're dealing with it every day in our practice. The prospect of attending an inquest can be daunting for family members. The public nature of an inquest and uncertainty about what may be revealed there 
can add anxiety to an already traumatic time. Coroner Terence Casey has seen this anxiety, especially when it comes to cases of suicide. Uh, I remember sitting in one of my courts where I think it was six out of eight of my cases were suicidal. And to look up at the gallery of people, parents, friends, brothers, sisters, and to see the, the hurt in their faces was practically, you know, very, very... It hit me. It was what made me first start talking about suicide and asking people to take more care and take more attention of the help that's out there. Um, it, it is a harrowing experience to see all those faces of those families looking down, waiting to hear about the details of their own son or daughter's death. It is very, very upsetting. I'm on the outskirts of Killarney, on a road with a string of B&Bs for tourists, to meet Dennis and Marie O'Carroll. Hello. Hello. How are you? How are you, Dennis? Is it yeah, Dennis. Rory, how are you doing? Rory, this is Marie. Hi, Rory. Welcome. How are you doing? Their experience of the coroner's court came when they lost their son, Nathan, in particularly tragic circumstances. This is the dining room, and we have a picture of Nathan in the dining room. It just, Marie put it there, it makes her feel, if she's down and out, she just walks out and she sees his picture. Well, Nathan was a normal 14-year-old, full of joys in life. As you see, we have a, a bed and breakfast here. We could go and let him treat, let in people. He'd have the meeting out of his hand before it, we'd they'd leave. He'd always know the ones he'd always say to you in the evening, tell me if they're go checking out tomorrow morning, because he'd know he'd have a tip to get off of them, whereas the rest of us wouldn't see that. He was, he was having a few problems, uh, minor problems, in school, and we thought we had that sorted out. Then I was diagnosed as being very sick, and I was in the hospital for a while, and the problems reoccurred, and... For some reason, he must. He went into a dark cloud that none of us spotted. Some of what Dennis talks about here, you might find upsetting. It was a Sunday evening, the 16th of December. The guest house was closed. We were down in our own house, getting the house ready for Christmas. He had put up the Christmas tree in the guest house. He was going putting up the Christmas tree in the house for on the following day after coming from school. We were out around the yard cleaning up. He went up to the shop with me an hour before that to get something out of the shop. He ate a full dinner, everything. No, nothing out of the ordinary. He just went upstairs and he went into his shower and when we were looking for him, we found him hanging in the shower. It was only a week before Christmas. Uh, between funerals and Christmas and everything. We just wanted to go into a corner and hide. He was the youngest of five. He took a fierce effect on the other four. And it's only really now seven years, eight years later, they're starting to come around slightly from it. There is sensitivity around the cause of any death. But in the case of suicide, the trauma of reliving the death is balanced with the need for a public hearing. There was an inquest afterwards. It was very, very hard. The whole process of the, of the inquest was explained to us what would happen. That it, all the details would come out and the verdict would be decided by the jury on the day. The coroner turns case, he made it as easy as he possibly could for the family. You're as sensitive as you possibly can be, but you, we, must, we must comply with the law at the same time. We have to hold 
the inquest in, in open court. We can't hold them in closed court. Um, we can be sympathetic towards the family as much as we possibly can and make it as easy as we possibly can for them. But at the same time, that's not going to lessen the impact of what they found. We were to be there for, I think it was 11 o'clock. Myself and my wife went there. My wife's brother went there and I think one of the lads went. And we just went in and sat down and, as it was called, where he went up, gave her evidence. You, you'll always offer the witness at the, the uh, chance of reading their own deposition. But in a lot of cases, they're so upset and so worried and so afraid of the procedures, I think, more than anything else, they would ask for the depositions to be read for them. She wanted to do it herself because she had, she had found him. Because herself and Nathan, he being the youngest, he was, they were so close. It was just unreal. Like. So she felt she'd be strong enough. There wouldn't be a big crowd there. She'd be strong enough to do it herself. And she felt happier that she did do it at the end of the day. Well, I think it's the reliving the actual finding of the body. Is the, is the most disturbing fact of it. That brought it all back again, right to the core again. Like It was like starting all over again. So the sooner... Uh, I would always say, if there is to be an inquest, which I think should, be, should happen, they should have them sooner rather than later. Not to be dragging it all up again and starting from scratch. We had only made a few months' progress, but at the same time we had gone back a few months again, so... Now, I can understand where a lot of people don't want the words uh, suicide appearing on a death certificate. There is that stigma attached to it all the time, which there shouldn't be. It was issued death by suicide, like, which is, I think, it was the proper thing, like, because for years this has been hidden under the table and there has been suicide deaths and it was death by misadventure, which doesn't explain anything to anybody, like, and nobody knows exactly what the whole thing is, like, for years, even here in, in Killarney, there's reportedly at the Muckras Abbey graveyard, there's a grave outside the wall and there's a person buried in it because they committed suicide, they couldn't be buried in it. At a coroner's court, nobody is found guilty or innocent and no criminal or civil liability is determined. The coroner couldn't be more helpful. Like. At the time, he actually asked the, the, the newspapers and things not to print if they could see in their way not to print the whole story, be dredging it all up again for the family until they had time that they were in a position that they could deal with it. But it didn't happen, it still got printed. There is no doubting the emotional impact of the details revealed at inquest. What's going to happen at the inquest is going to happen anyway. All the statements, everything has been taken, it's only a matter of going through the procedure and letting some five or six people on a jury hear it and they say, dead by whatever. You would find it, I mean, I have done one, did one there long last week where um, a son had to give evidence where he went into the shed to find his father and the way he caught his father and lifted him up off on the rope and, you know, hoping that he was still alive and roaring at him and roaring for help. He became very emotional. Of all deaths reported to the coroners, only about one in six will go to inquest. So coroners' court hearings will only happen according to when they're needed. Eleanor Fitzgerald spends most of her working life as a GP. And we're just coming to Keita Crossroads. When you continue on, 
You're, you're really going into the heart today, Finn. I'm travelling with Eleanor. She's making house calls to some of her patients in rural West Mayo. It's a road we would have travelled quite a lot in years gone by. Good weather, bad weather. Long distance calls would be 10 miles away. And, and now, actually, a lot of our elderly patients have gone to God. Uh, we don't have as many to do. But um, we have patients in their 90s, 96s, 97s. We have one actually 102, but uh, he's, got, he's, he's doing well. When the guard investigation crew ring you or when they're, you know, there's sudden death, you, through the phone, can ask them, you know, questions that pertain to, to the death. And if there was some doubt about how the person died, especially in a house, if there was query violent means being used, it may be necessary then to call in the state pathologist. I went out to Belmont one time, a man found dead and then like blood stains around the house and nobody seemed to have got into the house but how did he, you know, how did it happen so unless you see it some, the photographs really don't give the same picture to you So now we've arrived to our destination eventually and uh, I'm just going to take a little walk inside now, there's a dog here now trying to greet me but I'm not really afraid of him I don't think, he's Safe enough, he won't bite me. <laughs> a coroner is duty bound to try their best to reveal the truth of what happened. And whether comforting or disturbing, truth is important in its own right. Hi, Michael. Hi, how you doing? In North Mayo, I'm meeting young couple Maggie Bonner and Michael Jackson, whose lives changed forever late one night in 2014. Maggie and Michael were both just 24 years old. It was just a normal day. It was, was my van broke down and I went to get prepared for it. The lad was following me into Clala and um, the next thing, just felt a bit of a bump in the van. Um, didn't see anything, hear anything. Went in the road and parked up in Kalala and I noticed there was damage done to my van. Um, the other lad that was following me into Kalala, I asked him did he see anything, he said no. So went back out the road and then we found the body. Yeah, I panicked and first phone call I made was I rang Maggie um, the friend that was sitting with me in the van rang the guards I, I did know something was wrong when he was ringing me because he would just have came home if everything was okay he rang me to tell me that there's been an accident um, he's after running over somebody he was in the middle of the road and I need to get into Kalala fast Maggie and Michael's story of how they came to be at the coroner's court is one of around 2,000 cases of unexplained deaths that come to inquest in Ireland every year. We got in the car and we drove in. It felt like the longest journey ever. It's only about 10 minutes drive and I felt an awful lot more. I just wanted to be in there with them. So I got in to find the two lads who were sitting in the van and the guards were on the way and everything. The body was on the road and we knew not to go near it or anything. It was face down. Maggie had no idea at this stage what was to unfold later on that evening. I noticed on the road there was a bag and there was cans of drink and stuff and 
My dad would often go out and have a few drinks. He'd either go out in Billy Castle or Kalala. And he might bring home a few cans maybe for the next day or that night if he came home early. And when I noticed that, I was just kind of thinking, cans on the road. I was thinking, this could be my dad. Deep inside, I was trying to think, stop making it about yourself, Maggie. But um, that's when I went up to my brother and he asked me, what's wrong? So I said, um, I just hope our dad is at home tonight, Francie, because my dad lives in a different house. And uh, that's when we talked to the guards. I didn't want Michael to know because I wanted to not upset him any further. So we spoke to the guards and they asked, um, do we know is he at home? And we said, we're not 100%. So Francis, my brother, had to go and see was he in his house. The guard got the phone call. I stand beside the guard and I heard the guard saying, is there anywhere else he could be? And he said, I've... I've a set of keys here that I've got off the body. Is there anything about them that you could tell me that might represent your dad? Because he had no identification on them. And Francie said, if they're my dad's keys, there's going to be an anchor on the keyring. And the guard just said, you need to come in here as soon as possible. So um, I remember breaking down in tears and Michael came over to me and he goes, no, no. He knew straight away. I didn't have to tell him. He just knew what was unfolding. Maggie's worst fears were confirmed. It was her 65-year-old dad, Frankie, who was on the road and whom her partner, Michael, had accidentally run over with his van. When I seen Maggie breaking down, I just, it just clicked. I just couldn't believe it. It was just such a shock, like it was just, you wouldn't have a nightmare like that. It would be another six months before Maggie and her family would have to relive that night at inquest. People new to this country may not have even heard of a coroner or what they do. I'm meeting Anna in Ballina. She's originally from Poland. Hi Anna, how are you? Good, and yourself? My name is Anna. I'm 35 years old now. I have two daughters. I'm working as social care assistant. Uh, Anna moved from Poland with her two children to be with her partner, Adam Olszewski. He was working with the Hollister Medical Products Company in Balena. Uh, we were together three and a half years and we were living together two and a half years. Our plan was for this year actually to start to um, save the money and buy some, some nice house for, for, for us. He was um, 38 years old. Uh, he was a very good person. Adam never smoked. He drank only for social, and that, that was it. He was healthy, healthy guy. He loved sports. He loved to go for a run. He was a big fan of uh, Helen Buck. The Helen Back that Anna mentions is one of those extreme running events described as Ireland's toughest 10-kilometer race. Uh, he tried to be ready uh, for Helen Back in February. So we start to go into the gym for exercise. Uh, he pushed himself a lot. In December of 2014, Adam Olszewski was training hard 
for the upcoming hell and back race. He went for a run in the nearby Bleak Wood. After one and a half hour, there was no sign from him. I tried to call him, but he didn't pick up the phone. Back in their home, the circumstances of Adam's death were beginning to unfold for his partner, Anna. I called, I called and I called. After one hour, someone from Garda Station picked up his phone. Um, and uh, I asked, where is Adam? Adam had been taken to hospital, but it was too late. So they sent two policemen uh, into my house and I find out from them that um, Adam passed away. I was ready to go to hospital, yeah, because I was, I thought something, I don't know, something something small happened. Maybe that that would be fine, but wasn't. Um, I know that uh, was uh, some kind of problem to find him in Bellywood. The rescue team couldn't find uh, Adam something around one hour. Adam had been taken to hospital, but it was too late. No one thought something can happen like this. After her partner's sudden and unexplained death, Anna was told what would happen next. One of the policemen, uh, he told me everything, explained to me what kind of procedure have to be done now. So he told me that um, we'll be in quest and uh, I will find out everything there. As in all these cases, the final decision when to hold the inquest lies with the coroner, as Terence Casey explains. The normal way that it happens is we notify the guardie when we're going to hold the inquest. The guardie then, as our um, representatives, will notify the family. They will prepare the depositions Right, the last person to see them alive, last person to talk to them, the person who identifies them to the guards to be identified to the pathologist for the uh, post-mortem, uh, they will take depositions from all of those. They will submit then the book of evidence to me and I will read through that and I'll decide who I want there at the inquest to give evidence. The guardie then will arrange for those to be present on the day. They will also arrange, if necessary, to have a jury present on the day. And then I will sit and I will hear that evidence as per the depositions. Like most people in this situation, Anna waited as the months went by. After five months, I had to go on Adam's inquest into court. In the end, she was relieved to know what happened. I found out everything. And after that, I could go for Adam's death cert, yeah? And they told me that it was massive heart attack. And uh, even if help could come five, ten minutes after, probably it was not a hope for Adam. Yeah, because that was massive heart attack. So In Poland, when everything is clear, someone passed away for heart, heart attack, uh, we don't have some kind of inquest like you have here in Ireland. So that was something new. I didn't know that I have to wait, yeah. That was five months for me, but that could take a longer. That was a big surprise for me. You have to bring your memory back again. So it's really tough. It's not easy. While no two cases are the same, it is usual to have an inquest within six months of a death. But the time spent waiting is not easy. For Maggie Bonner, 
whose father Frankie was accidentally run over by her partner Michael on a Mayo road in 2014. The waiting period for the inquest was painful. The accident happened in June the 10th and we didn't have the inquest until the February. So um, I remember thinking the inquest was going to be the last kick you were going to get and it frightened me because you've got such a distance from June until February and you think, okay, we're doing okay, we're taking day by day, we're being strong, I'm doing okay. And then I was thinking, am I going to land to this inquest and they're going to tell me something I can't take? Or, you know, they're going so into detail on you. Nobody should ever hear that about any loved one. Definitely not. It's an awful experience, but it has to be done. There is some answers you want, but then there's some other things you could really do without, and it's it's really hard to sit there and have to go through that about someone you love. Coroners like Eleanor Fitzgerald are keenly aware of the effects an inquest has on families. Families quite anxious. They want to know exactly what happened. If was it due, you know, what the death was due to. I really wanted to know was. Was my dad alive on the road that night? I really wanted to know. It was just a question I had in my head, but um, he was unconscious. And I was kind of glad to hear that, you know, um, you've everything going through your head. You, you're terrified of him being alone, um, not being there with him. Just, did he know? Um, there was just so many questions you had. They answered a few, but like that, you'll never know. You'll never know why he was on the road that night. So, so you found out at the inquest that he was unconscious? He was unconscious on the road and he had a high intake of alcohol. Um, it was very high. As a mother myself, uh, I know, you know, too, I have found it very difficult doing inquests with p- people that I know who lost their sons or daughters, whether to be an accident or whether to be self-inflicted. I think dealing with that emotionally is, is difficult. Like reading about it in the paper happening to somebody else, fine, but when you're dealing with the persons who, who's lost, and then it really brings it home to you. Eleanor, oh God, she was so nice. Um, she was really... She was really like she was minding those two lads and she knew that night there was nothing they could have done. While Maggie was relieved with the inquest results on her father's death, her partner Michael also felt a weight lifted off his shoulders. Eleanor just said that it was an unfortunate case of events that happened for the accident. So, like, that was a big relief for me and Maggie and everyone, I suppose. It, it was it was fast enough, it felt long though, um, but I was glad it was over when it was. Coroners have the freedom to comment and give opinions on the issues that arise during inquest. Eleanor and Terence have regularly expressed strong views on suicide, road safety and rural isolation. God knows in the country areas, a lot of people are living alone, don't go to their doctors. There's often a lot of uh, neglect but that's why the purpose of an inquest really is to say, look, look, people do live in these conditions. Some of them are very socially deprived and then we do have to look out for them. People living alone, especially farmers, used to go to the creamery every morning. they meet their neighbours, they talk. They would never worry. If they had a problem, they talked talk to the neighbours about it. Postmen used to come up to their door, pop in, have a cup of tea, have a chat. Postmen only go to the bottom of the laneway or the boreen. Or, alternatively, they'd go down to the local, they'd have a couple of pints and they'd talk to whoever was in the pub. 
they won't do that now because of drink driving laws. So what are they doing? They're sitting at home, they're brooding about their worries, they're talking to nobody, and the worry is just building up. Something very, very simple may build it up to something very, very troublesome for them, and they'll take their own life. The hearing that Eleanor has been presiding over today has finished. The deaths have been ruled on. It's been a difficult day. We're all feeling pretty uh, drained. The first of the cases was of that young man killed in a single vehicle accident. There was an hour and a half of this off statements and answering questions to establish the facts over this, the case of the fatal road traffic accident of a young, young guy. And I suppose a lot of things come to light and then as regards how it happened but other questions aren't answered but uh, at the end of the inquest it's really to determine how, when and where the accident occurred and we did establish that and that is, you know, what injuries there were the jury then adjourned and uh, with the verdict and that um, the death was due to, was an accident but however you, do, you are left with a sense of disappointment that these that this death could have been avoided like there was a lot of alcohol involved the second road fatality today was a work-related accident. It's a case where a man was working as a supervisor on the road. A truck, a spraying truck with tar, for tar, and we'd be reversing up the hill. He was walking ahead of it, you know, very, very slowly. The truck was reversing. This man was in the way of the truck and seemed was crushed. And you just ask the question, how did it happen? Did he fall? Did he get a heart attack? Um, did he slip or trip? And the answer from the pathologist was he had no evidence of a heart attack. The witnesses did not see it actually him going under. They saw him after the truck went over him. They saw him beforehand and they saw him afterwards. So there again, the ink was trying to answer exactly what happened. But for Eleanor and her secretary, Kathleen, the work is not over. When we go over, go finish now, we, we write out the verdicts, then writing out the death certificates and sending so the debts can be registered. Sometimes answering questions from the families that are not sure about what they heard or not satisfied with what they heard either. So they're, um, they're, they're, they're the important, they're the ones that are left behind and they're the ones you try and help to come to terms with, with their loss. Coming to terms with the loss of a loved one takes time and the coroner's court is only one part of that process. For many families, some kind of memorial becomes important. I'm outside Kalala at the scene of the accident where Maggie lost her father, Frankie, and her partner, Michael, is by her side. Uh, we are just down the road from where the scene of the accident was on the 10th of June, 2014. I'd love a plaque put up there. I know there is um, things with the council now where they're afraid that if there's plaques, people are stopping and it can be dangerous. But, like, um, that's the last place I see my dad and I just like somewhere that would be... that I could go, that there'd be a plaque to remember him and that he wouldn't be forgotten. Frankie Bonner was one of 196 people killed on Irish roads in 2014. I have to pass it every day when I go to work, which the memories relive in your head constantly. During the day, it's not too bad, you know, you think of the memories, you think of him all the time, it's not as bad, but at night it's, it's horrible, it's lonely, you're frightened, you're constantly, you, you have to make sure your full lights are on, is there anything there? 
Is there anyone walking in their clothes? A hundred thoughts go through your head. You're frightened. I don't. I don't like to do it on my own. I don't like to drive at night on my own. Um, I'm terrified of something like that happening again. We've had a few, few experiences after, like during this year, where there's been two or three people walking out that road and no high vases on, and it's just it's instant. It just brings it straight back to you. And you just pause, you just freeze in behind the wheel of the van or car or anything. For the O'Carrolls, the family from Kerry who lost their son Nathan to suicide, they keep his memory alive in part by campaigning for awareness of the issue. Down the road we got involved with Pieta House and then we got involved in darkness into light and the, it's the only walk in Ireland that has a person's name with the walk and the walk in Killarney is known darkness into light, Nathan's walk which has gone on for the last six years and it's raising huge funds like, like that walk alone has raised in the region of 300,000 in those five years it's all about awareness basically get it out in the open, keep it out and it's nothing to be ashamed of Anyone, it can happen to anyone we would never have thought it would have come to our house we know umpteen people since that never thought it would come to their house so why hide it? Dennis believes it's important to be open about the problem of suicide and that we need to be upfront about it try and get people talking and get younger people and older people to go for help, the help is there now so go and get it It's the summer of 2017. I'm paying a final visit for now to Terence Casey in Killarney. He has some news for me. You reached the age of 70 there in May and uh, the law says you have to retire at 70, so I'm out of graze, you know, putting up out of graze. Retirement does give Terence time for his other passion, gardening. Uh, another couple of weeks now, the whole place will be full bloom. It'll be lovely. I haven't had much time this year, but a crop of raspberries up there this year. The role of coroner is inevitably associated with tragedy and seeking the cause of death. But in my time with Eleanor, Terence and the people they've served, I realise the process helps to provide people a chance to learn the truth about their loss. My final recording is with Anna, the young Polish mother of two, who lost her partner Adam to a sudden and massive heart attack. We're in Belique Woods, the place where Adam died while on a training run. We are nearly a memorial bench for Adam. And where a memorial bench provides Anna with a place to visit and remember him. It's uh, done by his friend. They were working with him. And I think most of the people, they, they, they loved him. They thought it, that it would be nice to do something like this for him and it's a great thing. You can always come here and take a seat. Uh, what, what does it say? In memory of Adam Olszewski, Holister, Balana. So, it's a really nice day in here. Don't you think? 